Mark chapter 9, 14 to 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it, I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The word of the Lord. So we're going to continue in our series in the Gospel of Mark tonight with this story that I think is, on the face of it, very obvious, it's an intense story. It's an intense story about a father whose son is incredibly ill. Epileptic seizures, seizures of the most severe kind. He's possessed by an unclean spirit and it's a story of desperation. And it follows right after what we looked at last week which was the story of Jesus' transfiguration. And one of the things that we noticed about that story was that it mirrored stories in the Old Testament when God would reveal his glory, most significantly at Mount Sinai, when Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai after having delivered God's people out of Egypt, the story where God appears in all of his glory is very similar in many ways to this story that we looked at last week of Jesus on the mountain again. And he's transfigured. He reveals his glory to his disciples. But as many similarities as there may be, it's the differences that really stand out. And the one that I tried to emphasize last week that sets us up for this week is that in the Old Testament, when God revealed his glory to his people, they were not allowed on the mountain. And he did not come down the mountain. It's not until Jesus 
that God reveals his glory in his son on the mountain again. At this time, though, Jesus turns away from his glory. And he comes down the mountain to be with us, to go before us on the way to the cross. And for what reason does he come down this mountain? We see it in this story. Again, he is confronted with conflict with religious leaders, which we've seen time and again already in Mark's gospel. He's faced again with the failure of his disciples, which he's seen again and again. And here, he's also faced with a lonely, desperate father struggling for the life of his son and even for the existence of his own faith. In other words, Jesus, he gave up his glory in order to come down into the darkness and helplessness of men and women, boys and girls, living in a broken and sinful world. So, what do we do with this story? What does Jesus want to teach us from this story? I think it's important for us to note at the very beginning that the catalyst is this unclean spirit. The presence of real spiritual evil and suffering that's manifested in very physical and destructive ways. Several times the story tells us that this unclean spirit tried to cast this young boy into fire and ruin him. In other words, it's a way that evil, spiritual evil and suffering tries to remove or destroy the image of God. In his creatures. Now, maybe reading that is a bit alarming to you. That this is something that we don't talk a lot about in our day and time, especially in the West. But the Bible assumes a much greater overlap between the natural and supernatural realms than we tend to. And the point I want you to see in this story is it's not so much. That everyone is, is, it's not saying that somehow everyone is personally possessed by an unclean spirit like this boy or that all physical suffering is always tied to an invisible spiritual battle. That's not really the point that it's making. Rather, the point is Jesus and his power over all that there is, visible and invisible, supernatural or natural. This story teaches you that he alone can rescue from the power of sin, of real personal spiritual evil, and all of the suffering effects that come with both of those. That's what the story is trying to show you. Again, is the power of Jesus over all that there is, and it's a power that he intends to do good by you. Now, here's what I want you to see from this story. That Jesus, he, he was on the mountain, he reveals his glory, he gives it up. That Jesus gave up his glory in order to transform our unbelief into faith in him. That's the point of the story. At the center of this story is unbelief. Prior to the story, Jesus is glorified. He gives it up to come down the mountain to turn your unbelief, your faithlessness, your doubt into faith. 
And I want you to see how he does this by looking at the source of our unbelief, the character of faith, and then we'll finish with the need for prayer. So first, let's look here at the source of unbelief. Look in verse 19. It's right after Jesus and Peter, James, and John have come back to their disciples off the mountain and immediately walk into the middle of an argument between the disciples and the religious leaders, the scribes. And we realize why in verse 18, when after this father and his son, bringing his son to his disciples, they're not able. They're not able to heal this boy. And Jesus says in verse 19, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? You see, right here, as he discovers what's going on, he identifies our greatest problem. Now, I suspect that there are any number of problems you and I walk into this room with. But if we're to understand the gospel, if we're to understand the Bible and the good news that it has for us, we have to understand that our greatest problem is our unbelief. There is no greater problem in your life than that sinister, very sneaky, often indiscernible problem of unbelief. And I want to show you that there there are any number of ways this can reveal itself, but there are two key ways we see in this story. First, we see it come from the pride and the self-reliance of the disciples. Notice, early on, The father brings the son. The disciples are unable to cast out this unclean spirit. At the very end of the story, after the crowd has dispersed and Jesus and his disciples are back in a house by themselves, they ask him, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus says, almost without any comment at all, he just says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The implication here is, Guys, you remember several chapters ago in Mark chapter 6, I sent you out to continue my ministry, and I gave you the power to do that? You have forgotten that. Instead, you have tried to carry on my ministry in your own strength, live independently of me. You see, pride and self-reliance is a breeding breeding ground for unbelief. It overestimates our abilities and it fails to admit our weaknesses. But then the second kind of unbelief we see here really comes in the example of the father. We see it come from the circumstances of this young boy and and the father's powerlessness to help and seemingly anybody else in the situation is incapable of helping. So not only does unbelief overestimate our own abilities and fail to deal with our own weaknesses, it also overestimates the power of sin and evil and suffering. And you can understand why if you put yourself in the place of this parent whose child has been suffering from this since childhood. It's not that unbelief is unintelligible or it doesn't make sense, it often does make sense. But where unbelief gets us in trouble, it always underestimates Jesus. And it always overestimates 
our circumstances or our own abilities. And what's interesting here for Jesus in verse 19, we learn that this is not a problem that is just for some people. It's a universal problem. It is the problem of the human race. And I want to give you just one example, just to get you thinking about this, in addition to the, the disciples and this father. Think about this for a moment. Think about generosity. Whether it be giving of your own money or your own time. You know, a lot of times people will say, well, you know, I just wish people, if people were more generous, things would be better, which is true. And usually the reason that we give for why we're maybe not as generous as we might think we should be is we're greedy, that we want to hold on to what we want, or we are continuing to build our, our assets and acquire more and more. We're greedy. Well, that I'm sure is true, but I actually think the bigger problem is the reason that we may not be as generous as we would like to be is we're afraid. We're terrified. Because money is how I know I have security in the world. If money is what proves to you you are secure, that you're safe, you're never going to give it away. And for Jesus, he says, seek first the kingdom and I will take care of you. Why are we afraid? It's unbelief. It's a failure to believe the gospel. And it's a universal problem. And why is this such a problem for us? I think Jesus helps us to see in verse 29 that at, at its very root, unbelief is a relational problem. It's not just about learning the right doctrine. It's not just about having the right answers. It's not just about the right moral practices. It is a personal indictment of Jesus. That's what's implied in verse 29 when Jesus says, this cannot be driven out by anything but prayer because what is prayer? Prayer is a relationship with Jesus. It's how we talk to him. It's how we connect with him. See, unbelief is the human heart pushing Jesus out of the center of your life. Now, what's so interesting is that when Jesus mentions prayer here, And we look back in this passage, there is only one prayer in this passage. Do you know where it is? There's actually one prayer that Mark includes in this story, and it's on the lips of the Father. When he says, I believe, help my unbelief. That's a prayer. And here, what we have is this prayer in this story, serves as a model prayer. It's the prayer that the disciples should have prayed, and it's the the prayer that must become our prayer. This is where all prayer begins. This is where all spiritual life begins. And let me tell you this too. This is where all spiritual life grows, is in this prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. I promise you, on the basis of this story, if that became your prayer every day, your life would be radically different a year from now. 
See, it is the root of all of our problems is unbelief. And in fact, one of my favorite quotes from another minister from another era puts it like this. A man or woman is what he or she is on his knees before God and nothing more. You ever thought about that? That as you are on your knees before God, that's who you are and nothing more. And here we have this father showing us in the midst of his anguish and dire circumstances how to pray. How to deal with our unbelief and move towards faith. Now the presence of unbelief in our lives as it is in this story it may look different. But its transformation will always look the same. And so I want you to look with you here at this idea of the character of faith and show you what it, what it looks like from, from this story. First of all, it begins with God's curiosity and interest in us. Do you notice this? In verse 20 or verse 21, after the boy is brought to him, and again, this unclean spirit convulses the boy and he falls to the ground. He's rolling about. He's foaming at the mouth. Verse 21, Jesus says to the father, how long has this been happening to him? Did you, do you think Jesus is curious about you? That he's interested in you? That he wants to know your story, your history, and all of its detail? That, this is where faith begins. Jesus allows the Father to tell his story and to declare his heart to him. He invites the Father to come to him as a total person with hard facts and desperate human hope. You see, faith, it begins with Jesus' curiosity in you. He makes space for you. He invites you to come and talk to him. But not only that, notice it doesn't wait for questions and doubts to go away. Look in verse 22 and 23. At the end of verse 22, he says to Jesus, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. The father comes to Jesus trying to believe, but he's full of doubts. And he responds to Jesus, help me. But what I want you to notice here is his cry for help is immediately followed by Jesus healing his son. Now you need to pause and slow down in the story and let that sink in. Here is a man who is plagued with doubt and fear and skepticism, and maybe that's you. And he says, I'm trying to believe this, but I'm so overwhelmed by the impossibilities in front of me. Whether they be intellectual or experiential, I can't seem to lay hold of you. And what does Jesus do? He heals the boy. What does that teach you about Jesus 
What it teaches you is this. As one writer puts it, Jesus doesn't demand this father get rid of his doubts and unbelief and come with a pure heart to him before he can ask for help. Not at all. The boy's father says, I'm not faithful. I'm riddled with doubts and I cannot muster the strength necessary to meet my moral and spiritual challenges. But help me. That's saving faith. Faith in Jesus instead of oneself. Perfect righteousness is impossible for us. And if you wait for that, you will never come into the presence of God. So this faith, it begins with Jesus' curiosity, but it also, faith doesn't wait. It doesn't wait to come to Jesus. It doesn't wait for doubts and questions to go away. And last, it grows with simple prayers of repentant helplessness. This is a beautiful picture of what Paul teaches us later, that God's power is made perfect in weakness. Did you know your greatest asset is your weaknesses, not your strengths? That's the upside-down message of the gospel. That as you come to Jesus, admitting your helplessness and your unbelief, that's when belief is born. That's how it grows. That's how you experience the life-changing power of God that you see in this story. That's really good news. I hope you hear that. That Jesus doesn't wait for you to get yourself right before he moves towards you and begins to remake you and show you his grace and his power. See, prayer is faith turned toward God. It's what the disciples failed to do and the Father is struggling to do. But Jesus teaches us that prayer is indispensable. It's how we get access to him. It's how we get access to his grace and his power. So I want to finish by looking at why it's so important, why we need prayer. Clearly Jesus here, just in one passing verse, indicts his disciples. It must be incredibly important. It's how we get access to him. So first of all, prayer Prayer gets us out of ourselves and our circumstances into Jesus and what he came to do. Look in verse 25 to 27 here, after the Father comes to him. Verses 25 to 27 describe what Jesus does as he rebukes this unclean spirit. He shows his absolute authority over real personal spiritual evil and the suffering that it brings. And he commands the unclean spirit to come out. And it does. And then the boy, almost everyone there said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. That verse there, verse 27, literally in Greek, reads that Jesus raised him and he was resurrected. This story with this boy is an object lesson about Jesus' ministry. Now, what do I mean by that? Again, slow down. Imagine if you were this dad and you'd come to Jesus for help. 
And Jesus says, all things are possible for the one who believes. And the father says, I believe, help me. And Jesus then begins to heal this boy. And he looks like he's dead. Well, how would you have felt? What would that have been like? I came to Jesus and now he tried to help and now he's dead. And then Jesus takes him by the hand and brings him to life. Do you hear any themes in that that we've been looking at in the past weeks from Mark? Here's what this story teaches you. That sometimes when you come to Jesus, things get worse before they get better. The boy looks dead, but then Jesus raises him. Think of Jesus' entire ministry. The Son of Man must suffer many things and then be raised on the third day. What I hope you can see here, your own experiences of suffering, of hardship, correspond exactly to the life of Jesus and his ministry. There is great solidarity to find in this story. So prayer, it gets us out of ourselves. It gets us into Jesus and his ministry, what he came to do. But it also, it grows as we find help from Jesus' prayer life. I've said this before, but in Mark, Jesus is only recorded to pray three times. And only one time do we even know what he prayed. And that's in Mark chapter 14, on the night when he was betrayed in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, when you look here, Jesus in verse 21, how do we get to this idea of help from his prayer life? Well, first of all, in verse 21, Jesus says, if all things are possible to the one who believes. Now, I don't want to get too bogged down here, but who's he talking about there? It, it can actually refer to either the Father or to Jesus. Either way could, could be accurate, could fit with what's being said. But what I want you to see here is that that verse that Jesus, those words he says, it stresses the object of your faith, not the strength of your faith. Who you put your faith in. And on this point, we have to look to Jesus. This is what the Father is trying to do. And where can we look to Jesus, to see what this looks like, to actually look to see what does it mean and what does it look like for Jesus to believe, for Jesus to have faith. There is perhaps no better place to go than Mark 14 when Jesus says, the night when he's betrayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. That's faith. That's putting your confidence in the Lord. That's Jesus putting his faith in his Father. Have you ever thought about this before? Part of the gospel is Jesus has believed perfectly for you. You have a Savior who has had perfect faith. For you. 
That's really good news. Because you see, when we allow Jesus' prayer life to help us, what we discover is that Jesus never forgot his total and utter dependence on his Father's love and help. But Jesus was undone by his circumstances. He was undone by real personal evil and suffering. He was crucified on a cross alone outside the city. And his last words were, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know why he went through that? He went through that so that you never would. The good news of the gospel, what we learn about Jesus' prayer life for us, his faith for us, is that you can now be sure because he was forsaken in your place as if it was you there, you never will be. Do you, I hope you can begin to hear that can begin to melt your unbelief and replace it with faith. So what I want you to do from this passage is this. I want you to begin to put together the prayer of the Father in the story with the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane. Because when you do that, you will begin to hear Jesus transform your unbelief into faith. You will pray, I believe, help my unbelief. And that prayer will give way to, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. What's going on in my life right now, I really, really am asking you to take it away. Make it right. Yet not what I will. Your will be done. So are you plagued with doubts? Whether they be of an intellectual kind or an experiential kind? If, if so, do what this father does. Take them to Jesus. Go to Jesus and say, I believe. Help my unbelief. See, this is why Jesus gave up his glory and he came down the mountain. It's why he gave up heaven. To turn your heart and life toward him through going to the cross for you. And thereby giving you free access to his grace and his power to make all things new. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we rejoice at this story. We rejoice that you are a God who identifies with us. You are not put out by our unbelief, but in fact you step right into it. And you don't wait for us to get ourselves right, but you move toward us with grace, even at the cost of your own life. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you please come down the mountain as it were, indwell our lives, take our unbelief and our doubts and our fears and our insecurities and our pride and our selfishness and melt them away and replace it with wholehearted faith in the Lord Jesus. Would you please do that? For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.